Let's do Revelation chapter 7, and we will finish Revelation 7 this morning, Lord willing. Let's ask the Lord to lead us this morning. Heavenly Father, we we just thank you and praise you for what you're doing in our lives and in the life of this church. We thank you, Lord, for your intent and your power to grow us and to sanctify your people, Lord. We thank you for gathering us together this morning. I ask, Lord, that as we we gather around your word this morning, that you would teach us, that you would instruct us. And as we talked about this morning, for those of us that have been born again in the spirit of God, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us to teach us and to guide us into all truth. Lord, I pray that nothing would be said this morning that would be contrary to your word, but Father, that you would feed your sheep this morning. Lord, we desperately need to be fed. We need to be nourished. We ask that you would do this through the work of your spirit and the proclamation of your word this morning. We ask for your help. We ask, Lord, for your cleansing and your washing as we um, as we approach your word this morning. Father, it was commonplace in the days when our Savior walked this earth to wash feet before meals. We ask as we come to your table this morning, Lord, that you would wash us and prepare us as we partake of the Lord's Supper this morning. We ask for your help in all these things this morning. And mostly that you would be preeminently glorified in what we do. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. We are in Revelation chapter 7. Last week we looked at verses 4 through 8. And that was uh, point 2 in our four-point outline in Revelation 7. And it continued to address the question that we end with in chapter 6. And as we see the seven seals being opened, in verse 12, it says, When he had opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island were removed from its place. And the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who shall stand? We have in Revelation 7, an amazing interlude, we've called it, a break in the opening of the seven seals between the sixth seal and the seventh seal when we pick up in chapter 8. And it's important to think about why this interlude is here. It's not showing a different chronological order, but this interlude is here to remind us that in the midst of the undoing of all creation, when God shakes this world and everything is undone at the end of Revelation chapter 6, this is the amazing picture here. The response of the unbelieving is not one of repentance where they call out to God to forgive them 
of their sins. They were wrong. They misjudged him. They didn't see him as the Messiah. We're sorry. No, the answer is get us away from him. And if need be, let the mountains and the rocks fall on us. And, and it ends with this amazing question, and it's incredibly important, which is who can stand? So last week we looked at um, answering this question in the latter part of Revelation chapter 7. It does just that. And we looked at the sealing of the saints. And John begins in verse 4 of chapter 7 with hearing the number of the sealed, which is 144,000. And then in verse 9, as we'll see this morning, he sees. Now, there are some commentators who want to divorce the first part of the chapter from the second part of the chapter. And they would say, well, it's talking about two completely different groups. The problem is, is that the context is the same vision that John is seeing, because we'll see later in the chapter, we have the elders, the four creatures or the angels. We have the throne. This is the same picture. We're still in the throne room, which we started in in chapter four. So we we would be we would be doing injustice to the passage to break up the first part of chapter seven from the second. And and what many commentators do is they say, well, the hundred and forty four thousand is the physical lineage of Israel. The second half is the rest of believers. Really, what all of Revelation chapter 7 is doing is answering the question, who are the sealed? Who are those that will stand when Christ comes back and the wrath of the Lamb is revealed against this world? We looked at, um, we looked in detail last week at the first few verses, which detail um, the difference between the original family of Israel, if you will, and what is portrayed here in Revelation chapter 7. And it's not without differences as we looked at. But the net takeaway that we that we looked at last week is that Christ is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. He is Israel fulfilled. In Genesis chapter 12, a, a passage that is often quoted, especially in the context of politics, um, it seems to be one of the planks of, of one of the political parties that if you're nice to the nation of Israel, God will be nice to us. And they miss out on the fulfillment of the promise here as it's spoken of in Genesis chapter 12, when it says, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That is in your seed, Abraham. Abraham's covenant promise from God was a promise that in the seed of Abraham would all of the nations of the earth be blessed. Well, who is that seed? Say, well, we could guess that. And you could go down through the list and you could say Jacob, Isaac, David, Solomon. But what is the common thread with all of the seed of Abraham until we get to one specific member of the seed of Abraham? They all fail. They all disobey. Not one of them keeps covenant with God. And if we were to interpret the seed of Israel on our own, we don't have to, by the way, because Galatians chapter 3, Paul tells us very clearly. How is that passage in Genesis 12 to be understood? In Galatians 3, verse 15 um, Paul says this, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. 
How is the covenant ratified, by the way? And what else? There's something else that's very important. Christ ratified his covenant. Yes. When when God put um, Abraham into a, a trance-like dream as he's showing him the covenant, what does he do? He divides the animals and passes through it as a, a picture of the ratification of that covenant. Christ is the ratification of the covenant of God. But he says, he continues in verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but to one. And here is exactly the takeaway. And to your offspring, who is Christ? So Paul is clearly telling us that the offspring of Abraham in the promised fulfillment of the covenant is Christ. We looked at the 144,000 as a complete picture of the seal. We'll see another picture of this in Revelation chapter 1 when it talks about New Jerusalem. And you'll see when we get to Revelation 21, we'll come back here and compare the two passages. But Revelation 21 is a picture of the completed church embodied in the New Jerusalem. The redeemed of the earth are also in view here, and also the completed church. In Ephesians chapter 1, and Jesse, you read this this morning, we're reminded of the fact that we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Well, who are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit? Those who have been chosen by the Father, and those who have been redeemed by the Son. No one that's been chosen by the Father and redeemed by the Son is not sealed by the Spirit. You have the perfect work of the triune Godhead in in securing the salvation of his people. The Father choosing, the Son redeeming, and the Spirit sealing. That's the picture of the 144,000 here. But it's also to be seen in light of the church. Because remember when we studied the, the seven letters to the seven churches, In Revelation chapter 3, this promise was given to the church. I will write on him the name of my God, that is, him that overcomes, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. By the way, this new Jerusalem is the bride of Christ. We'll see that in Revelation 21. This is all a picture of the same thing. The 144,000 is a picture of the completed body of Christ that has reached glory in safety. And that's what our text is about this morning. These have been redeemed from the earth. Revelation 14. Um, we looked at the comparison between the physical lineage of Jacob and the fulfilled Israel depicted in Christ. When, uh, And I'll share this, by the way. I meant to do that with slide five on our slide deck. Um, I will share that because it was extremely helpful for me to help understand the difference between Genesis and the picture of Revelation. Um, Israel under Christ and Israel under Jacob. Excuse me. So one of the things that we noticed about our text, the differences was Judah was moved to fourth from fourth place in the original order of the lineage to first. There's an important reason for that, because out of the tribe of Judah came who? The lion of the tribe of Judah. Exactly. So Christ in in that, Jesse, can you go to slide five for me? 
in that order on slide five, we see the comparison. Christ is shown as preeminent with the exaltation of the tribe of Judah to number one. That's what this is trying to, this picture is trying to draw our attention to. The preeminent one is not Jacob. The preeminent one is Christ. We looked at um, all of the different ways that Jesus fulfilled the covenant, and he is the fulfillment of Israel versus Jacob. Remember, we looked at this last week. He was delivered from Egypt in Hosea 11.1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. In Matthew chapter 2, it says specifically, Jesus fulfilled that verse. He passed through the waters in obedience to baptism. Um, And I was thinking about this. We were talking about this earlier um, at home. One of the the big dangers that we have is complaining and whining about whatever our circumstances are and how great a sin it is. And the reason why it's such a great sin is if you compare the children of Israel in every step of the way in their journey out of out of Egypt, they had witnessed the 10 plagues that God brought on Pharaoh and the people of Egypt, and God miraculously takes them out of, out of Egypt after being in bondage for 400 years. When you're in bondage for 400 years, the thought process has to be, I will always be in bondage. This was a massive change, and where they were never afforded freedom to leave, they they um, as they exit Egypt miraculously, God delivers them, takes them, and the first thing they face is the is the passing of the Red Sea or going through the Red Sea, and we find them complaining before Pharaoh gets to them, and it's a repeated pattern for them, and the exact opposite is true of Christ. Every step of the way in his earthly ministry, we do not see one account of Jesus complaining. And how did Jesus get treated? He's the son of God who laid aside his glory and we see him treated. He was, the scripture says, despised and rejected of men. If anyone had right to complain and murmur, it was the Lord Jesus, but never did he do it. But he passed through the waters. He was tested in the wilderness. He was tested on the mountain. And he, in every way, fulfilled the law where Israel did not. That is the nation of Israel. We looked at the fact that the four sons of the bond slaves are elevated there and how important that was. I was looking back at this and thinking about the story of Rahab. Do you remember what the, the Israeli spies told her to do? After they were let were, were let down and escaped, do you remember what they told her to do? She was to tie what a scarlet cord in her window. You think about the symbolism there in the picture. What is the picture there? Very close and akin to what Israel did when the death angel was going through the land of Egypt. They were to apply the blood to the doorposts, and they told her. Put a, a, a crimson cord, hang it from your window. It's a picture of escape through the blood. It's a picture of salvation. 
She's mentioned in Matthew chapter one in the lineage of Christ. And we see God's grace on full display. And, and, and we talked about the unity of scripture here. One of the reasons I do not believe in, in a, um, a plan B from Israel to the church is that throughout all of scripture, God has his plan is the same. Mm-hmm. It's continuous. And he gives us little hints as we go through the Old Testament, lest we think it's all about the nation of Israel. Now, the nation of Israel plays a prominent role in redemptive history, don't they? Paul talks about that in Romans. He said, God gave them the law. It was through the nation of Israel that God established um, the scriptures. They play a very prominent and important role. But, But we get little hints as we go through the Old Testament, don't we? Think about Ruth. Think about Bathsheba, who gives birth to Solomon. There are examples in the Old Testament of people who are included in the covenant who have no physical right to be included in the covenant. How about this guy? What was his mother? Anybody remember? Naphtali is the son of, or excuse me, um, sorry, I pointed to the wrong one. This one. Who's his mom? She's Egyptian. Um, You find that interesting? Joseph's son, whose mother was Egyptian, not named in the first 12, is moved to a role of prominence in in the account of the 12 in Revelation. We looked at the fact that the flesh profits nothing. And as Jesus in his earthly ministry dealt time and time again with the Pharisees, they thought they had an in with God because of they were sons of Abraham. Remember, Jesus tells them, you're not sons of Abraham. You're of your father, who is a liar. Who is your father? The devil. The flesh profits nothing. And it brings us to point number three this morning, where we'll focus the most of our time. And this is a a picture of complete or a complete picture of salvation verses nine through 14. What are John's observations here? He says in verse nine, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. What do we observe about the sealed church here? Well, first of all, it's a great multitude. What does that mean? Um, John says it's such a great multitude that he couldn't count them. He says that no one could number. That is, no human could number. John could not count the number of the multitude. Do you suppose the number is counted, though? Yes. Do you suppose anybody sneaked into the crowd? (laughs) (laughs) What does Jesus say in John chapter 10, verse 14? I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. 
and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. And what you're looking at in Revelation chapter 7 is a picture of one flock. And in that flock, there are speckled sheep. There's going to be black sheep. There's going to be brown sheep. There's going to be all sorts of varieties of sheep, but it's one fold and one shepherd. This is a picture of the fact that in Christ, all things are summed up. A little bit of a math term there for us. When you add things up, you sum them up to get to the the total at the bottom. Everything here is this is a picture of Christ summing everything up in himself. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for the adoption to himself as son, sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, having la- which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. Listen to this. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The picture of the 144,000 is a picture of Christ summing all things up in him. It is a picture of the finished redemptive work in its entirety. But I want you to see, he says, it's a great multitude that no one could number. And then he says, from every nation, which is an interesting statement. The word nation there is is, uh, from the Greek ethnos and primarily has the idea of foreigners. Well, foreigners as compared to who? As John would write this, the average Christian in the early church would have been what? Jewish. Um. But we see the expansion of the church in the early church to the Gentiles as well. But when you see the term foreigner in scripture, who are you? Who does that bring to mind? Gentiles. Yes. And we see that in the Old Testament as well. I want you to, to look at, at just a, a couple of references. Isaiah 56, verse 6. Again, we have hints in the old in the Old Testament that, that this was God's plan all along. There is no alternate here. In Isaiah 56, verse 6, God says, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and listen, holds fast my covenant. These will I bring to my holy mountains, or my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples the lord who gathers the outcast of israel declares i will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered the lord tells us in the old testament and here pictured in isaiah he intends to gather 
from every place, from every nationality. In Acts chapter 17, as Paul is is preaching about the the unknown God or responding to the worship of the unknown God, he says this in Acts 17, 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of all their dwelling place. Psalm 22 27, and all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over all the nations. The picture of the redeemed in the presence of God is a picture of God ruling all of the nations. It's important to note here because scripture shows us the picture of ethnicity here. And it's important for us to see this. It shows us ethnicity because ethnicity doesn't matter. Does that make sense? Ethnicity is irrelevant to your salvation. But so the picture of the completed body of Christ is from every nation, tribe, and language, and tongue. You know what? Race matters in the church of God. Nothing. Where the where the 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 genuine Um, deception was that the church was dealing with at that time was only Israel has an in, only national Israel has an in with God. Now you say, Danny, you're, you're being anti-Semitic here. No, I'm not. My response to that is exactly what, what Paul said in Romans chapter 11. Is God done with the nation of Israel? No, it tells us right here, there will be, there will be the redeemed in heaven from the lineage of Jacob physically. But he's also going to pull from the Gentiles from every nation and tongue. Why? Because he's God. He's God over the nations. It's, it's and I won't belabor this point, but it's interesting to me that we see such division on race in our country. It has no place in the church. And honestly, it has no relevance in the church other than the fact that God redeems people of every background. And the church is beautified by that diversity, but that doesn't have to be forced. You know who takes care of the diversity of the body of Christ? Christ. And that's all that matters. There's nothing here that says discriminate with where and to whom you preach the gospel to. If that person is this color or this racial background or or ethnicity, there's only one race, by the way. Scripture says it here in Acts chapter 17. We need to be very careful that we don't get caught up in that nonsense because it is nonsense. Christ shows us right here. Ethnicity doesn't matter. What do we see those from every nation doing? Does one ethnicity have a closer standing to the throne of God? You see anything there regarding this people is better than that people? No. In fact, the contrary, they have some things in common. But we find them doing what? They're standing before the throne and before the Lamb. This again answers the very important question who can stand? Who can stand? 
in Hebrews chapter 4, it gives us a picture of standing boldly. And that's really what's happening here. The church before the throne or around the throne is standing. Well, compare that statement with what you find at the end of chapter 6. What is the world saying in the presence of God when God comes back and reveals himself for who he is? The unveiled glory of God is revealed to all humanity. What is their response? Hide me. Cover me with the rocks. Here is a much different picture. What is the, what is the sealed, the church, the redeemed, the true Israel? What are they doing? Worship. They're worshiping, but they're standing. There's a picture there of boldness. And that's why Paul tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, since then, here's why we're to be bold. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Look at verse 16 of Hebrews 4. Let us then with confidence. And the word in the Greek is outspoken confidence, bluntness, frankness. Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's a couple things about this that jump out at me. God gives us through our high priest, the Lord Jesus, the freedom to come to him with boldness, with frankness, with assurance, knowing that I can stand before him, not because I'm innocent in and of myself, not because I'm sinless, but because I have the great high priest who gives me that confidence. He says, let us draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy, and find grace to help. The throne is a throne of grace to those who are standing before it. To the unbelieving, it is a throne of terror. It is a throne of wrath. But also, there's a a word here. When we look at the word help, in the Greek, it is the word, and, and it's, Given this definition, definition, it is a rope or chain for frapping. And this is not a caramel frappe <laughs> that I know Maddie is very fond of. The word frapping is, is, a, uh, it is a seafaring term. And the idea is to pull a vessel alongside of and secure it. And so the picture is, is when we need help. The throne of grace is there as a lifeline for us to to draw near to, to pull close to, and in that way to be secure. And the interesting part about this is the help is timely. Have you ever prayed and felt like the Lord did not realize the timeline that you were on and the, the immense pressure and jeopardy that you were on Lord? I'm running out of time here. I need help now. He that sits on the throne knows exactly the timeline that we are under. 
and the urgency of our situation. And it talks about timely help. So we're to come to the throne with boldness for timely help. A timely lifeline. What else do we see about those that are standing around the throne? Well, it it tells us how they're dressed. How are they dressed? In white robes. What is the white robe? What righteousness? Christ. Amen. This is obviously the righteousness of Christ. Matthew 22, Jesus gives us a parable to illustrate this. In Matthew 22, and and Jesus speaking in a parable says, verse 2, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. Who, Who are the servants calling for the wedding feast, inviting to the wedding? That's the preaching of the gospel. Yes. And he sends his servants to call those who are invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Who were the servants sent to that they would not come? Who is Jesus talking to there? They rejected Jesus. The invitation at that time was given to the lineage of Jacob. And he says, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off one to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. Now he's talking about the prophets here. We talked about Fox's Book of Martyrs this morning. This is exactly what Jesus was talking about. And look at verse seven. The king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. What is that? It's the expansion of the gospel to the Gentiles. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw that there was a man who had, what, no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. The picture here is very clear. Only those at the wedding feast will be there, not because they're good, but because they have on the wedding garment. What is the wedding garment? Well, he's picturing here the marriage supper of the Lamb. The reuniting of the bridegroom with the bride. And it's pictured in the Lord's table. What we celebrate when we come to the Lord's table is a picture of that marriage feast that we will one day partake in. It is the eyes of the church looking through faith to see the great feast. And only those at the table that are dressed appropriately are truly welcome. Say, well... 
What does that mean? Those who are dressed appropriately are dressed in the righteousness of Christ. That's it. There's nothing else. And the picture of this great multitude of people surrounding the throne, they all have that same thing in common. Yes, they're different from their ethnicities and the languages that they have spoken. They all have one thing in common, and that is that they're wearing white robes, the righteousness of Christ. It also says they have palm branches. Um, Mark, you took us through um, a look at uh, Solomon's temple, and palm branches are are prominently displayed in that. Also in Ezekiel's vision, which is a parallel vision of the New Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 21, we see a picture of palm branches prominently displayed there. And you think, well, what? What, what's the picture of the palm branches? Well, we know that in John chapter 12, when Jesus is coming in, it's what's referred to as Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. What is, what is the crowd waving at him? Mm-hmm. Palm branches. So here is a picture as well with the church gathered around the throne. They're waving palm branches. There's some figurative significance with that. We don't think of this often because we don't live where there's lots of palm branches or palm trees. We're a little too far north for that, but the palm tree was a picture uh, or a symbol of prosperity. Um, Israel used the palm tree for everything. They, They used everything about the palm tree from the very smallest of leaves to the branches to the seeds, to the fruit, um, to the trunk itself. Every part of it was used um, in their community as the norm for their living. And it was a picture of prosperity. Well, what's, what is being pictured here with the waving of the palm branches at the throne? And there with the throne is the lamb. Well, it is another view an actual biblical view of the prosperity gospel, meaning this, that our prosperity is is bound up in who? Christ. Christ is our treasure. Christ is our inheritance. When When we went through the seven letters to the seven churches, at the end of each one was a different picture of a promise that Christ gives the church. But every one of them meant essentially the same thing, which is to him that overcomes, I will give myself. And what what this is showing us is that the church, the gathered body of Christ in heaven, is at full fulfillment because they have what they've been looking for, the author of their salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our treasure, our inheritance. He is our prosperity. What do they do? Verse 10, they cry out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What is the nature and the essence of their worship? What is it wrapped up in? By the way, it's the same for us. What motivates us to worship God? His love, and specifically in his work of redemption. The essence of their salvation is, or the essence of their worship is salvation. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
The sovereign ruling God has secured our salvation through the lamb. And and what has he done? He spared them. And if you're a child of God, he spared us from the great day of wrath. That doesn't in any way excite us. Something's wrong. The picture of this is that glory belongs to God. He did it all. The picture of this church, the body of Christ, the sealed surrounding the throne is they are worshiping God because he secured their salvation in its entirety. All the glory belongs to him. Psalm 3.8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. You know what they don't say? Well, I, I, I contributed a little something. You hear the church saying that? Is the church lauding its contributions to redemptive history? Not a whiff of that. I was thinking about that in relation to Judges 7. Judges 7 is the story of Gideon. And Gideon had 22,000 people, or a little bit better than that. And what does God tell him? He's to go out to battle um, with Midian. And the Lord says to Gideon or Gideon in Judges chapter 7, verse 2, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel, what, boast over me, saying, my own hand saved me. And Gideon's like, you know how it worked, how hard I worked to get all these volunteers to come fight? You know, he's probably thinking that. And the Lord says to Gideon, tell every man who has fear in his heart to go home. And 22,000 of the people returned. That left 10,000. So it was 32,000 altogether. And the Lord's response to that is, it's still too many, Gideon. Go down to the river, and he sorts them by how they drink. If you lay down like an animal at the, at the, uh, at the water, instead of standing in a fighting pose and bringing the water up to you while you're alert and looking and watching, you get to stay. The other ones that didn't go home. And that left them with how many people? 300. And then the Lord said, now you have enough to go fight the Midianites. What was he doing? He was showing them that it is only through his miraculous power that that we are delivered. The picture of the body of Christ around the throne is a picture of God's miraculous power. Not one of them will stand there and say, wow, I dodged a bullet. Look at all the things that I did, all the right decisions that I made, the aisle that I walked, the ministry that I did in my time on earth. And I made it. Not one. They sing with absolute unison. Salvation belongs to God. It is to him that the glory goes. Lest we think highly of ourselves. First Corinthians chapter one, Paul says, for consider your calling, brothers. And, you know, it is so common for when you talk about the subject of election and predestination, I've heard it said several times, 
You can't just throw election and predestination out because they're very prominently displayed in scripture. But the explanation to explain it away is God looked down through the corridors of time and saw that I would be a good Christian, that I would respond in faith. And then he chose me. How arrogant. How arrogant. Paul says, for consider your calling or your election, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, but not many were of noble birth. But God chose or elected what is foolish in the world. That's us. Why? To shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We often think about, you know, so-and-so were to rise to a promise of hero status, how much good they can do for the kingdom of God. God uses the lowly, what this world looks at as rejects and outcasts. Why? So that not one of us will stand in his presence and say, look at what I did. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is what? The gift of God. Why? Not of works. Lest any man should boast. Because you know what we would do if it was of works? We would, we would brag. I met the Lord halfway. The Lord is not going to share in his glory. Nor should he. And this picture here is of the church giving God absolute glory for everything he did to secure their redemption. I want you to take just a minute to think about your own life. Some of us, it won't take very long. Some of us, it could take the rest of the service. (laughs) So we think back over the span of our years. But look back over your life and think about what God has done in your life. What he bought you or redeemed you from, where he brought you from, what he has forgiven you for. So I don't like to think about that. We need to remember Israel erred because they forgot the bondage that they were in. It is good for us to be reminded of the calluses of the yoke that was on our backs. It's good to remember that. Not that we want to remember our sin. But if we, listen, church family, if we forget what God has forgiven us from, we, what are we thanking him for? What are we rejoicing him for? Our understanding when we're in the presence of God will be complete. It will be perfect. We talked about the fact that our knowledge will be sanctified. But they're rejoicing in heaven because they have been redeemed from their sin. Do you think they've forgotten their sin? No, they see that in Christ, their sin has been removed. They've been made perfect. There's no celebration if you're perfect and you've not remembered what God has saved you from. 
They're rejoicing in their salvation. Well, there's no salvation if I forget what I was saved from. It is good for us to remember what God has saved us from. It is, it is when we forget that that we get proud, that we get haughty, that we begin to brag. And we've seen this in Reformed circles quite a bit, haven't we? Look at the, the theological knowledge that we have attained over the years. If that's where we are, then we forget all about the need for grace, and it's all lost on us. Not one brag is evident among the redeemed church. And notice what it does in verse 11. Think about this. It elicits an amazing response in the angels. The angels were not or have not been redeemed. You ever thought about that? The angels were were created in a state of perfection, sinlessness, and we find the angels, those that did not fall, by the way, those who are attending to the throne of God, what are they doing? They're excited. They're excited by the testimony of the church, and it, and it elicits a response, and it excites the angels to worship God. And look at their response. Verse 11, the angels are standing before the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. And look at their response. Saying, amen. What were they amening? There's argument that these might not have been Baptists because they were giving lots of amens here. But they're amening. What are they amening? The testimony of the saints. Amen. Surely this is true. Surely this is trustworthy. And their response is blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Blessing, first of all, God is worthy of all adulation. In, in human terms, it's excessive admiration. In heavenly terms, there is no such thing as excessive admiration. He is due all blessing and adulation or admiration and praise. Why? Because salvation belongs to him. It doesn't say he deserves most of the blessing. And a part of it's reserved for those that did their best. No. Secondly, it says glory. I love Piper's definition of, of glory. God's glory is him putting on full display his nature and his character. God has chosen to display his glory. The heavens, what? Declare your majesty. The glory of God. Affirmant demonstrates that. You go outside and look at night, and if you're not seeing a Chinese spy balloon, you're seeing the amazing, majestic work of God's hand. It's his glory going public. And listen to why he elected some and gave others over to destruction in Romans 9, 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath, you mean God wants the world to know that he is righteous and that his wrath is on full display. Yes. What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction 
Who did he demonstrate his wrath on, by the way, that we see in scripture? Remember Pharaoh? What did God say to Pharaoh? For this purpose have I raised you up, that I might demonstrate my power in you. Verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there will they be called the sons of the living God. God has desired to put his character on full display, and he does that with the redemption of his church. It says also wisdom to God. His unparalleled wisdom is brought to bear in in the securing of the salvation of his people. Wisdom here is intelligence, unparalleled intelligence and insight was wrought in your salvation. Do you realize that? Romans 11, 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? And who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. It is God's unparalleled wisdom that secured your redemption. Then he says thanksgiving. The word thanksgiving in the Greek is where we get the word Eucharist, which we don't often refer to the Lord's table as the Eucharist, but that's it's been referred to in other circles that way. But it's, it's the word for active gratitude. The essence of the Lord's table for you and I is what? Thanksgiving. We come to the Lord's table to thank him for what he's done for us. Then he says, honor, immense value or worth, power. The word in the Greek is dynamis, miraculous power. Not one person is saved without the miraculous, regenerating, life-transforming power of the triune Godhead. Even the ceiling that we talked about is the the magnificent, powerful work of the Holy Spirit to indwell people like us. And then the last word that the angels use there is might. It's the force and ability to save his people. All of these things are wrapped up in the salvation of the elect. He's brought all these things, his attributes, to bear, to secure the salvation of his people and display his glory. Verse 13, then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And this is a, this is a rhetorical question. John's just there taking it all in, right? And one of the elders, it's like, John, who are all these people? John's like, I'm the new guy. Why, why are you asking me? But it's a question that has to be asked. Because the scripture is pointing us to this. It's showing us this picture. Who are these and how did they get here? 
in verse 14, John responds, sir, you know. I don't, I don't know. You know. And he said, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. That is through intense pressure, persecution, distress, affliction. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Guys, I would I would be dishonest if I told you that there is any way to get to glory outside of tribulation. Everywhere, and I've studied this, and I hope you have as well. The weight of scripture says that our life, when we come to Christ and when we are made new creatures, gets dramatically more difficult. Not easier. And when we see the the uh, conversion of saints in the early church, the, the disciples confirming them, and they're telling these new converts, you will through what? Much tribulation enter into the kingdom. How lovely a thought it is. Actually, it's not. But how tempting a thought it is to say, I'm not going to have to go through that. I'm going to get raptured out. I can't find it. I can't find it. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ goes through much tribulation to get to the throne. Robert Murray McShane said this as he's preaching on the same passage. He said, quote, they came out of great tribulation. Everyone that gets to the throne must first put their foot upon the thorn. The way to the crown is by the cross. We must taste the gall if we are to taste the glory. Go around everyone in glory. Everyone has a different story. Yet everyone has a tale of suffering. One was persecuted in his family by his friends and companions. Another was visited by sore pains and humbling disease, neglected by the world. Another was bereaved of children. Mark, all are brought out of them. It was a dark cloud, but it passed away. The water was deep, but they have reached the other side. Not one of them, listen to this, not one of them blames God for the road he led them on. Salvation is their only cry. That's the truth. That is a pastor who preached the truth to his church body. We hear, we, we hear such a different message in our culture, but it's a lie. Why? Because God has ordained that through tribulation, what will happen to his church? We will be refined. The trying of our faith says also that they have washed their robes in the blood. That's a paradox, isn't it? Their robes are what color? White. White. Brilliantly white. As I'm thinking of things that are brilliantly white. Can't help but think about Joel Osteen's teeth. I don't know why. I'm sorry. White. If if only I had teeth that white. Amen. <laughs> 
But the word in the Greek is brilliantly white. And the paradox here is that they washed their robes that are white in the blood. Have you ever gotten blood on your clothes before? In our house, if there's just a speck of blood, it's an instant call for a box of Band-Aids, all of them. But here, they washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Every single one of them, there's not one person there in the presence of the Lamb and in the presence of the throne who does not have their robes washed in the blood. That is a common theme amongst every believer. Not every act of suffering will be the same for every one of us. Do you realize that? Not every one of us will be burned at the stake because we would not. We would not concede that the Bible is not the authoritative word of God. But there have been some believers who have been burned at the stake. Not every one of us will die that way. Not every one of us will suffer that way, but mark this, every one of us will have suffered something. That is God's way for his church as he brings them through the wilderness into his presence to sanctify and wash us, to take away our love for this world. Point four, lastly, I know you're on pins and needles. We're almost done, I promise. A picture of this grace in which we stand, verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. A couple of things to to point out here. They're sheltered in the presence of God. And the word shelter there in the Greek is oriskino. We get the, uh, the picture of tabernacle there. They're sheltered from the elements. What are they sheltered from? Well, guess who can't get to them? the enemy of our souls. They're they're out of reach. Out of reach. What else are they sheltered from? The wrath of the Lamb. It says they serve God day and night. Now, this is symbolic because what do we find about heaven? Do we have the sun and the moon and the stars in heaven? No. So what is this a picture of? They serve God day and night. Have you ever worked 24 hours a day? Some some of you have. Some of you do. That's not easy, is it? What happens when you do that? Burnout. Burnout. Why? Because we get tired. What is this telling us? You know what the saints have arrived at? Their Sabbath. They're at full rest in serving God in his presence. They don't get tired. Why? Because what the picture of the Sabbath is, is our eternal rest in the Savior. They have achieved that. They have arrived at their rest. Therefore, they serve God without weariness. All that makes us tired is banished. (laughs) Any of you guys tired this morning? I've noticed some. You don't think I watch you, (laughs) but I do. Some of you are like, hurry up, Danny. It's, it's tough. And this guy absolutely failed the test. <laughs> we get tired, don't we? When, when the Lord Jesus was tempted, we're in the Garden of Gethsemane. What did he ask his disciples to do? 
Stay awake. Stay awake and pray. And what do they do? They're sawing locks. The flesh is weak. They serve him without weariness. All that makes them tired is banished. They serve in the shadow of the throne. They are made worthy by the blood. There is, by the way, no shame, no hiding. All of the guilt of their past is gone. There's nothing about the the body of Christ washed in the blood of the lamb that requires them to shirk away from the throne. Because, well, if God sees what I did here, or if he knows about what I did there, and I've got this thing in my past that I don't want anybody to know about, do you think God doesn't see it? Everything, the entire picture of the sin of the saint is covered and washed in the blood of the lamb. There is no shirking away. And it's a reminder that they made it, that God brought them through. This is summed up by Paul in Romans chapter 8. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring anything? Or any charge against God's elect. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Listen, shall what? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep for the slaughter. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Notice what he doesn't say. You've got it easy. He doesn't say that. He says, in spite of all of these things, not one of them, including tribulation, can separate us from the love of God. We will arrive in the predetermined destination, which is before the throne. It's guaranteed. This is incredibly important because he's writing this to the seven churches, and the seven churches are currently going through what? Tribulation. Assault. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ, our Lord. What doesn't fit into that description? Well, Paul wasn't anticipating um, a digital currency from the Federal Reserve. Fill in the blank. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Verse 16, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. You remember what Jesus told the woman at the well? He says, if you drink of the water that I give you, will you be thirsty again? No. You'll never thirst. We'll never be hungry again. Neither will be any, there, there will never be any more thirst. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. What is the scorching heat? The wrath of the lamb? 
Notice this, that the need of the church is fully and perfectly met. There is no longing for what will someday be. Have you ever dealt with that in your life, longing for something that you've never seen to attain and praying that whatever that need is or that desire of your heart would someday be met, such as human experience, isn't it? This is a picture of the church whose needs are fully and perfectly met in Christ. There is no longing of what will someday be. We've we've talked about it before, knowing that um, we could soon die or the Lord could soon come and you say, well, I want to experience this fill in the blank first. There is no experience, no unmet need, no unfulfilled uh, longing of your heart that will not be fully met in the very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. No more hunger and thirst, no more scorching heat, the wrath of the Lamb. They are not in danger of the heat or fire of judgment because there is no condemnation, what, to them who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 17, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. There's another paradox, isn't there? The lamb will be their shepherd. What does it tell us? You are no longer a pilgrim and a sojourner in the land. Because you are with the shepherd. You've reached your journey. There's no more wandering and looking. We have found what we've been looking for. Isn't the music of our culture telling? Famous song from U2. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. That's a song, that is the essence of our culture, isn't it? Unfulfilled desire. Or maybe if you're a Rolling Stone, Stones fan, I hope you're not. I can't get no satisfaction. There is no satisfaction in this world. That's the point. Jesus is the fulfillment of every possible need of our lives. This is showing the embattled church that everything they need to prepare for what was to confront them and what what they were to encounter up to and including martyrdom. Everything they need is found in the person and fullness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's sufficient. I, I can say with full conviction that I believe without any hesitation that we, Word of Grace Baptist Church, at this time in America have tough days ahead of us. I really believe that, and I say it with full conviction. And you say, well, what can we do to prepare ourselves and each other for what we are to encounter? And the answer is found right here. The best thing that we can do to prepare ourselves and our children is to anchor ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the answer. Because nothing else matters. 
He says there will be no more grief, no more anguish. The things that make us cry. When was the last time you cried? And what made you cry? Every source of tears for you and I will be gone. History. All that makes us cry is gone. Revelation 21.4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain. For the former things have passed away. Everything that grieves us and makes us cry, the Father takes away in his presence. So as we think about this, as we come to the Lord's table in just a minute, the question about who can stand is, is very well answered in this passage. Paul says in Philippians 3, 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The only question that matters for each one of us is whose righteousness am I wearing? What is my wedding garment? Am I wearing my own righteousness, my good works, my best efforts, my pulling myself up by my bootstraps, or am I wearing the blood of the righteousness of Christ, a robe made white by his blood? Heavenly Father, Thank you for the words of the song that we just sang. Forbid it, Lord, that we should boast in anything but the cross. We thank you, Lord, for the grace in which we stand. We thank you, Father, that you have graced us with a reminder of what is waiting for us as we face what we're facing here. And knowing the fact that you have secured our eternal destination. And it is just a matter of time before you bring redemptive history to a close. And we are standing in your presence. We rejoice in that this morning. Lord, we ask that you would encourage us. That you would give us um, courage and boldness as we live in this world. That you would empower us to please you and to live for you in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. We ask for your help and your empowering grace, and we praise you for what you've done. In your name we pray. Amen.